Welcome to Life on Pause, a podcast defining the experience of being a young adult with cancer. Each episode, we explore issues impacting young adults in and after treatment. Like what you hear? Have something to add? Come join us for next month's recording, the third Tuesday at 6 p.m. Welcome to Life on Pause. Tonight, we are joined by Dr. George Blackall and Sarah Merrill. Dr. Blackall is a psychologist at Penn State Health Children's Hospital Oncology, and Sarah Merrill is our long-term follow-up social worker. Tonight, we will be trying out a format that is a little bit based on advice column style. So we have a whole slate of submitted questions of what would you ask a psychologist or social worker? Maybe more apropos, what have you always wanted to ask, but were afraid to ask, or maybe even better, but forgot to ask. So we're going to turn it over to Dr. Blackhall and Sarah to start guiding us through those questions. But as always, our podcast has a friendly discussion-based kind of format. So we'll just see where the evening topic takes us. So without further ado, Dr. Blackhall and Sarah. Thanks, Shelley. So I just wanted to kind of say, I think Part of the reason why we wanted to use this format for tonight was that we kind of see that you all are the experts really on this topic. And so how can we start to facilitate discussion around maybe topics or questions, like Shelly said, that either you were kind of too afraid to ask, or we might think people who are listening are too afraid to ask, to kind of really dig a little deeper into what is this survivorship thing after you've kind of lived the experience that you've had. I think maybe to get started, it might just be helpful to go around if you could and just say your name, maybe the diagnosis that you had, how long ago that was, and how long maybe you've been in survivorship. So my name is Brady Lucas. I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia at age eight years old in 2005. And then I relapsed in 2010 at age 14, have been in survivorship now for almost 11 years. Hi, I'm Abby. I was diagnosed with ALL in 2017, and I was just trying to do the quick math of how long I've been in the survivorship. I guess about two years, I think. Not quite two years. My name is Casey. I was uh, also diagnosed with ALL in 2018, and I am actually currently still on maintenance treatment. Hi, my name is Gus. I was diagnosed with germ cell cancer back in 2013. When I was 17. I'm about to survive about two years now. I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in 2019, been in survivorship January 2020, so like a year and a half. Shelly was able to give us some of the questions when she put the feelers out there to everyone. I think there was a lot of common themes. So between Dr. Blackall and myself, I think we'll kind of go through some of the questions we got, but some of them definitely hit certain topics with fear and anxiety survivorship guilt, and just an overall kind of how do you do young adulthood after you've lived through the experience that you've lived through. The one was specific to, as a young adult, cancer survivor, how do I navigate stressors of long-term survivorship while also navigating young adulthood? So when I heard that question, I think as a social worker, some of the, the things that I know about adolescent and young adulthood developmentally is that you're striving towards, you know, without a cancer diagnosis, healthy development would look like wanting to become more independent, starting to think about future goals, 
building relationships with peers, becoming connected in an intimate way, building those kind of relationships as well. And I think what I often see is developmentally that a huge wrench is thrown in that for those who are going through cancer treatments. You're kind of pulled away from the ability to be independent because you're having to be dependent on your parents again, maybe for the first time in a while, depending on the late effects that you have. It may be difficult to do the goals, the career goals that you were looking forward to, or just given your life experience, you may not want to do what you did before. You may now want to go down a different path or field. So I think it it can cause kind of like a little bit of a quarter-life crisis <laughs> for some, because what you thought you wanted to do or what you thought you were going to be looks very different now. George, you can talk about that a little bit more. Yes. Thank you, Sarah. You know, it's this it's this competing event of your normal, quote, human development into young adulthood, along with the experience of cancer survivorship. And how do you blend the two? Sometimes people try to break them out separately, and, and that can be very, very challenging. And I often talk with people about thinking in terms of, you know, the cancer experience, where do you want it to fit in your identity? Some people want it to continue to be a core central part of their identity, and other people don't want it there at all, which can be problematic because it is there. So it's it's a question of helping people think through where they want it to fit and also how you want it to inform the rest of your life. As Sarah alluded to, sometimes your life goals are going to change through an experience like this. And that's it's not just okay. It can be a wonderful, beautiful thing, but it's trying to figure out how to use that experience to really clarify the direction you want your life to take. And with that said, what would you all say to that? I mean, as as we kind of talk about what we see as those developmental tasks and how that can look very different, I guess we want to put it back to all of you to talk about maybe what your experience has been as you've transitioned into young adulthood. What what are some of the common things that you have seen or struggled with? I think one thing I'm I struggle with is looking at health a lot different than my peers. A lot of my peers are treating their bodies in different ways than I would, to say the least, which I think lies a distinction between me and them. But I also think it's even as far as financial planning. So you're looking at different aspects of saving money in case something comes up as far as health-wise or needing a job that has good health insurance and good benefits because that's something that means a lot to us. So I think there's a lot of different maturity aspects as far as developmentally for me right now at this point compared to maybe another 24-year-old that is of the same stature as me. I recently got, well, not recently, I guess, but I got a new job in March. So like the place that I work is not the place I was at when I went through treatment. I'm kind of like at that awkward point where literally no one there knows unless they stalked me on Facebook. I don't know. It's kind of awkward because like things come up. It's a, it's a nursing home. So like how things come up and like, I'm always hesitant to say stuff because I don't want them to be like, wait, why do you know that? I don't know. I just currently, I go through that struggle because I don't want people to ask like, oh, like, why is that? And like, I don't want them to know either. Well, I like, I don't care if they know, but like, I would prefer them not know also because like, I feel like my previous job with, because I've had like neurological things go on. I feel like it was doubted also like my ability to perform, I guess. So I don't want that want that to be a thing where like, oh, she can't perform like she used to perform because she had this and stuff like that. I'm going to echo what 
you mentioned, Brady, about health insurance. I never thought that I would be 26 and being super concerned about what health insurance plan I have. And But you have to worry about it because I know like a lot of people end up with late effects and like due to some of the late effects I have, my medications each month before insurance cost like 20000 And that's like not something anyone could just like realistically pay out of pocket. So when I aged out of my parents' health insurance, it was like a whole emergency trying to figure out what plan to be on. And that is not anything that would have happened in my before life. I don't even think I would have been mildly concerned about it. I would have just like went with whatever, but you can't face your health that same way. You have to kind of plan for like bad things to happen. You guys have kind of started to transition into that. I think kind of comes with the feeling of, am I normal? Am I feeling normal? And am I normal? We got a couple questions on that. Two of them. Is it normal to feel like you don't belong just because of the way you look after cancer? From the moment I walk in the room, I feel so much anxiety and horrible thoughts. The second question, as a young adult cancer survivor who cannot drink alcohol due to cancer treatment, how do I navigate creating new young adult social relationships without having to directly share my health history? So I think that starts to kind of intertwine a little bit with what you're saying from like a health standpoint. I feel different because it sounds like you're you're experiencing things that like other people your age aren't having to think about, right? Like they're going to fall off their parents' insurance at 26 and then they're just going to kind of hang out so they get a job or find a career where they can get health insurance. That's not something that you can do. And that could feel awkward when you start a new job. And like you talked about, Emily, how do you navigate those conversations? How do you not start to have people kind of peg you as somebody else or something different? because you shared a little bit of your past and your experience with your cancer. So, I mean, yes, that's normal (laughs) for you to be experiencing that. It's kind of part of that new normal that happens on your timeline of your life experience. And after your cancer diagnosis, after your treatment, this new normal that starts to develop, that is definitely part of it. I think with any kind of life transition or this developmental stage, you're trying to figure out and navigate who are you? What's your identity going to be? And like Dr. Blackall said, you know, do you want that to be part of your identity or do you not want it to be part of it? And how do you kind of carry that burden if it feels like a burden for you? You know, how do you unload that as you're trying to, you know, figure out who you are and and what you want to be? So that concern about I, I don't feel like I connect, I feel different, I don't feel normal. The survivors that I work with is, is not universal, but just shy of universal. It's very common. And I think it's important and helpful to know that, that there's not something wrong with you. It's that your life experience has been so different than those you, your same age peers. Over time, the level, the playing field gets leveled by nature eventually, but it could take a long time. So you're in the situation that you're in, and it can create awkward situations like Emily referred to, like the drinking. And what I'm curious about is from y'all, like, what strategies do you use to navigate some of those situations? Or have you not figured it out quite yet? Well, I know for me, um, when my type of cancer is germ stone, so there's actually a tumor in the middle of my chest. So we had to do open heart to remove the tumor. So I have a nice big nine scar on my chest. So a lot of times when I'm with friends, we go to the pool or kayak and I take my shirt off. People, everyone sees the scar. I, I noticed how people catches their attention. At first, it's kind of, you mentioned, you don't really feel normal. You feel kind of like an outlier. So at first, I guess I kind of use humor like, oh, you think this is bad? You see the other guy. I use that kind of 
with it. And then later on, I kind of sort of, I'm not quite there, but kind of embraced it where someone will see this scar and they'll ask about it. Now I tell them, oh, this scar is that's the reason why I beat cancer. You want sometimes you tell the story. So in some ways, it's kind of like maybe accepting and embracing it a little bit. So that's going to kind of help me. I learned to grow with it in a way. Because you can't hide nine scar in your chest. So I think you used to it. I feel like at this point, my method of navigating life right now is just, especially at work, it's, just, it's really just you go with it. You be the awkward person. And it's just like, like the other day, literally, it almost happened. My my boss was like, why do you go to Hershey? And I was like, oh, darn it. I was like, it's going to happen. And I was like, oh, I just have appointments there. Like, I don't know. So I, you just be awkward. I don't know. Here's a question I have. Like, I remember being a young adult and I did not have cancer, but I remember being fairly awkward as a young adult. So how do you know, like, what the difference is? Is this just part of being a young adult and some of it being awkward? Or is it, I mean, some of it is themed differently because of your cancer experience. But how many of your regular peers are hiding, potentially feeling like they don't quite know what's going on? and are doing their best to bluff, bluff them their way along until they figure it out. I might just add one thing to that. I, I, I agree with you uh, as far as that being a, a reasonable part of young adulthood. But I, one of the things I hear a lot along with that is not just that they feel awkward or not normal, it's that they may feel a lack of connection to same-age peers. And when I was in my early 20s, I felt very connected to my same-age peers because we were all bumping into the same walls. So I just want to throw that as out as something to think about uh, as well. One question I guess I would have too off of that is that have you found, I mean, certainly there's this podcast and there's groups similar to this for cancer survivors. Have you found connect that you find that connection more so with individuals who have kind of experienced the same thing that you have from a cancer perspective? Have you had that opportunity before now? Do you have it in other aspects of your life, I guess, would be my question. I think certainly there's an instant connection when you do meet people that have had it. I don't know necessarily if I'm searching for it, but if it comes across, I definitely think there is because they are a group of people that truly understand what you went through and not that everybody wasn't side by side, parents, caregivers, siblings, et cetera, weren't beside you. But at the same time, they didn't experience it, which I think is is very interesting. And kind of to go back to Shelley's question as far as normalcy within peers or feeling awkward. Personally, don't think I thought of it that way because I didn't know the difference. The the automatic scapegoat, for lack of better terms, was the cancer diagnosis. It wasn't necessarily thinking that other people felt awkward or different as well. I think reason why I could feel awkward or unnormal, I guess, for lack of better terms. Um, And then to kind of go back to the whole alcohol drinking question, like I never was able to drink alcohol. I submitted that question. And one of the big things I think I always did was try to make a humor of it, but be one of the most awkward situations is when you're at a bar, you're at the middle of a party or whatever, and someone asks, why aren't you drinking? And it's either you tell them the truth, you make fun of it. Like, hey, I got bit by a shark in my liver. And next thing you know, there's, you know, funny things from there. Or you make someone cry, which 
obviously I never want to make that happen. So there's like these three options that come into play. So for me, it's kind of an interesting area as I move into a young adulthood, what to share and what to be honest with and finding individuals that truly will understand or individuals that maybe maturity wise aren't in the right place to get the full story yet. I would add, I've, I've had very, very similar experiences over the, the past few months and the past year. One thing I'll, I'll add that I just have found very interesting is I think since the pandemic, there's been a greater level of empathy for that. I think everyone experienced their own level of isolation. And so there's an understanding of like, one, what that's like. And then two, I think everyone's a little bit socially rusty right now. So interactions aren't as seamless as they may have always been. Um, and so I think people kind of, have, at least within my life, have had a little bit more of an understanding of, wow, that must be, that must be tough, which in a weird roundabout way is, is kind of nice. The only other outside of this group, I haven't met anyone with similar experiences, but I feel like the, about this stuff, the only person I can really relate to is a person that was there like pretty much every day and like knows what happened. So I'm going to move on to another one of our topics or questions that we received. The first one is, is anxiety depression common among survivors? And the next question, which I kind of think answers that one (laughs) because it was another question about anxiety and depression, is having cancer as a young adult forces you to contemplate your own mortality and your fear of mortality at a level that is unusual for our age group. Understandably, that fear can be overwhelming at times. How do you counsel young adults to deal with or get over that fear so that it does not continue to dominate their thoughts and lifestyle after they have completed treatment? Yes, it is common to have anxiety and depression after treatment. During treatment, we talk a lot about the fact that we are traumatizing you to help you. And so the experience that you have is not a normal one. It is not one that your body or your mind should really have to go through. But we do that in hopes to eventually get you back to a place of health. So yeah, if you go through that, you are going to feel more anxious and and more depressed at times. I think for some individuals, it can be heightened by other life stressors that are also happening around the same time that you're receiving treatment. So if you're going through cancer and cancer treatments as an adolescent, you already have these heightened stressors of trying to navigate a higher level of education, figuring out what you're going to do with your life. You're questioning what is the meaning of life, which is really normal developmentally. And then thrown into this is this whirlwind of trauma that you're kind of experiencing. How we move through that, I think, really depends on each individual. I don't know if Dr. Bucko, you could talk about that a little bit more in your experience. So I, 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 a lot of people come to me with this very question. It's like, you know, I'm 20, whatever, and and I have these thoughts. I still have these thoughts, even though I'm off treatment, that I, that I can die from this, and it's very invasive and intrusive in my life. And so there's there's the straightforward stuff of helping people work with anxiety mindfulness, those kinds of things, anxiety management techniques. But then there's the bigger question. One of the differences between you and your same age peers who didn't have cancer is that you know you're more. People can say, oh, I know I'm going to die, but they don't really know they could die. You know it. And that changes life. 
And it's a hard change. You know, when, when you're an old guy like me, right, it's different. But when you're just beginning your life, it's very profound. And what I try to work with people around is, okay, that's the reality. How do we use that knowledge, what you know about your mortality, to inform the life you want to live? So rather than sort of push it away or run from it, we try to embrace it and use it to create something that you believe to be meaningful. The other point I wanted to make on the depression anxiety is, while it is common, I just want to offer that there's a lot of uh, therapeutic treatments that are very effective for it. For anxiety, I want I want to recommend uh, Judson Brewer's new book, Unwinding Anxiety. So there's a lot of resources available, non-pharmacologic as well as pharmacologic, if they're if they're uh, helpful for people that can be really helpful in managing anxiety or depression that may come from this. So let's open the floor now to your thoughts on this. I think one thing I get a lot is how are you okay with death or dying this early in your life and to me, I if I die today, then it would be my time to go. And I think one bit one big thing that I recognize is that death isn't the end all be all, it's the rebirth. So something that's really grounded me is my faith. So looking at you're born as a child and then you're reborn when you die. And I think one thing that's really pushed me to set outside where I'm at is that the point of looking at the time when I went through treatment and the time where I struggled as a benefit. So I learned a lot about myself through it. My family learned a lot about each other through it, but also it wasn't wasted time at all. This is something I've talked to Dr. Black all about is the whole idea behind looking at life as always an opportunity to learn. And one of my big pillars in life is learning. So I think for me at this point, me being okay with dying allows me to fully live my life and fully navigate the future. And I think that's kind of taken away some of the anxiety and also looking at faith as a backbone that everything's out of my control to a certain point. Obviously, I can make decisions about life and things like that, but really putting the faith on the backbone and the structure and skeleton of my life. And that's kind of helped with a lot of the different thoughts of, you know, well, what happens here? What happens there? What happens here? Like, how are you so okay with, I guess, how things are, how things could go, stuff like that. And I don't, I'm just kind of one of those people. I'm like, there's no, I don't know. I'm just a carefree. I guess I'm just like, there's no use worrying about it. It's going to happen when it's going to happen. Worrying about it isn't going to make it come any later or it be like less painful, stuff like that. So like, what's the use? No, I agree with that. I think that's really um, good what you said, Emily, about kind of like, because you, you know your time set, there's no point in wasting that time worrying. So in a way, maybe like death, it kind of forces you to really just kind of enjoy like the moment, like the present. Because when we have cancer, death goes from something being very hypothetical to something that's more realistic and you think about it. So I think when I think about death a lot, it's more now that I kind of just really, if you want to have it, have it, that's really just, kind of enjoy the present, enjoy like, the moment of now. And so I kind of did now, like, especially when I take my dog's walk, I'll kind of like stay off my phone and unplug everything so I can just kind of just be in the present. And that's something that I guess, in a way, you know, death's not a great thing. But one thing I know is you start to realize how precious life is and to really just kind of soak it all in. So in some way, that's one, you know, weird way kind of a silver lining to the dark cloud of death in a way. Yeah, I think I think something I'm I'm still learning is I met someone who was I think a 
30-year survivor, somewhere in that time frame. And they mentioned to me that they they think about it every day still. Um, they still think about it every day. And I thought of that when I heard that in a negative sense. And I, it took me a while. And I feel like I'm still learning that that can be a positive if handled the right way. And I think that's what he meant. I just didn't understand it at the time. So that's just something helpful that I feel like I try to think about more and more, but still could do it every day. So with whom have you guys had that converse, those conversations about, are there loved ones in your life that you've brought it up and have felt like it's helpful to talk about? Is that a strategy you use to, to talk to people that you trust about it? When I was the most sick and like, there were actually definitely more than like a couple of times where I realistically like might not have lived. I didn't like realize that that's what was happening until more than a year later. So I like actually processed that that is what I went through. And I think one way that I kind of did process that is by talking to the people that were there with me, just like, oh, like, do you remember when this happened? And then we'll just like talk about it. And that happens, I think, a lot. So I think for me, that's been a good way to like reminisce about things. And like, just because you think about it every day doesn't mean it's bad. Like, how you view your your treatment over time can, I think, change a lot. And like, like I feel like at my point, thinking about it for me, it's like become more of a positive thing than a negative thing. Like I'm able to see like what positive things came out of my diagnosis instead of just dwelling on the negative. Even though there's definitely times where it's like really easy to be swept up into the negative still. The insight that all of you are kind of sharing is pretty awesome. Just in the fact that For some people maybe listening to this, they haven't had that insight yet. They haven't had that switch kind of go off of kind of like you talked about, Casey, like when you first heard that, you were like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. I'm still thinking about this every day for 30 years. And then kind of realizing, oh, I'm going to be thinking about this and how I can appreciate life and I can not take things for granted every day for the last 30 years. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So hopefully that can resonate with some people who are listening to you guys talk about that tonight. The one thing that I think comes up often when we talk about survivorship and long-term follow-up is survivor's guilt and how that's how that's looked at. Some of the questions that kind of came up, I want to make sure I get both of them. My question would be, do you notice a lot of patients having survivor's guilt? Is that a common issue with cancer patients? What are some healthy strategies for coping with survivor's guilt? So as a social worker, I have certainly heard, I would say probably at least two or three patients that I see in an afternoon in our clinic talking about survivor's survivors guilt. It comes out in different ways. I think traditionally, when you hear that term, you think of kind of, I've survived and I'm alive. And there's people who who did not finish this journey. But I've also heard it in the terms of this guilt of as you've kind of transitioned into survivorship, you're now seeing the impacts that it had on friends and family. And that has kind of come into the picture as well when it's been talked about. So it's definitely um, a common discussion that's had. I don't know if if Dr. Blackall, again, if there's more you want to add to that or if there's things that you've kind of seen as a trend. Yeah, I talk with a lot of people about this. It's very common. Uh, And I think that, and, and to your point, Sarah, understanding, you know, what you feel guilty about. Is it the other kids you knew who didn't survive? Is it what your family went through? Uh, so understanding what you, what you may be feeling guilty about can be very helpful. And one of the things I hear a lot about is people thinking in terms of, I owe something to the kids who didn't survive. 
And I think that speaks to the size of your heart, that 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 comes from a really good place. And what I try to help people think about is, okay, if that's how I'm feeling and truly thinking about it, what would those kids want for me? And I, I think what we try to get to is living your authentic life. I mean, the reason you go through everything you went through or are going through is to live your life. And I think that's what people who are able to, who don't survive this want for you. And that's really honoring their memory and their legacy by going on. And maybe some of you will go into medicine, like some people on this call. Maybe some of you have zero interest in that. And that's perfectly okay. I think if, if you do think in terms of what do I owe those kids who didn't survive, it's living the life that gives you purpose and meaning, right? Because that's why you did everything you did to survive. So have you found or pieces of your life with life of meaning and purpose? What does that look like right now for each of you? I think for me, it took over 10 years to find this out. I mean, this is only something recently that I've addressed fully and I've experienced the whole gamut of what Sarah spoke about. I experienced what it's like to lose friends and feel bad and try to live a life for them. I've experienced looking back at family and friends and said, look what they did for me. So almost like you owe them something. And I think a big focus of mine now is really, like Dr. Blackwell said, living an authentic life for me and leading just restructuring the way that I think about everything that I do. So more looking at it, it's okay to do things for me. It's okay to do things for the benefit of myself, not necessarily always having to do something for someone else and living a life full of or free of guilt compared to full of freedom. I don't like, I was glad, not glad, but like interesting to hear that like Brady felt like he just found it. Because like I was sitting here thinking, I was like, I don't know I've found that place yet. Because like, I don't know, like I've only been in the so-called like cancer world for like two years, I guess. But I tried more to, I don't just do what makes me happy. Like, like one thing that we do every day is we go to work. My old job, I was miserable going to work every day and I was miserable coming out. So like I made a change and like that doesn't happen anymore. It's not like you walk out of like the cancer center on your last day, chemo, chemo and be like, oh, there's my life's purpose. Emily, it was part of your discharge planning paperwork. I don't know if you didn't read it. I was just one of those patients. They just kind of, when I was done, they're kind of like, okay, bye. See you never. I think for me personally, it was really interesting because before I was diagnosed, I had like vague interests in medicine and like maybe doing more like science research, but I just like could never decide what I wanted to do. And I felt like wasn't very happy in the job I was in or anything. And then after I got cancer and it didn't happen until pretty much like the end of it, but then I was like, I know what I need to do. Like, and I felt like uniquely kind of like equipped to like take the path I'm going. So I think for me, that was interesting. I've never felt like a lot of guilt about it. It like, more like help me clear out my thoughts that were already confused before cancer. I think there was a, a few other questions. And I think the last one was really helpful that kind of came in late after Shelly had reached out to everyone. And that was, what do you say to patients who need assistance, but are hesitant to re receive psychological care or utilize social 
resources? And I think that's a really great question because I would say as a social worker, that's sometimes part of what my role is in the survivorship clinic. And I, even as a social worker, cannot struggle with that the most is I can't force anyone to receive those services, even when I'm seeing that that might be something that could really kind of help them start the process of looking at being able to gain some of the insight that you all have shared tonight or processing, you know, some of those things that they are struggling with. Hey, so I'd add to that. I mean, I talk with people a lot about this. And what I always say is, look, you know, there's a time in life for everything. And there's a time in life for therapy. And there's a time in life not for therapy. And that's, you know, bad for my business, but it's the truth. And, and people have, I always tell people like, look, all of us have this inner wisdom about what we need. And we may also have ambivalence toward deep change. And that's okay, because there's a time in life when you can you can really engage that and make progress with it. And then there's other times when it's not right for you. And I respect that. I respect your inner wisdom completely, right? So you really, it's, it's up to you. And, and I think that that's the truth. I mean, when people are not ready for that process, I don't pass judgment on them other than trust yourself. Now, why do people come to me, right? So the, the, the bottom line is when they're stuck, right? So people have a problem. Maybe it's survivor's guilt. Maybe it's PTSD. Maybe it's identity. All these things we talked about. And they've tried many, many things to improve that part of their life, and it hasn't worked for them. So they really feel stuck in a place that's uncomfortable. That's a good reason to go see a therapist. That may be a really good time to go see someone and start to say, all right, let's, let's pick this apart. And let's figure out how I can vote from this. I think that's when like that discharge paperwork, that mythical would be really handy. If it could just tell you like two years from now, of course, the therapy is going to be exactly what you need. Three years from now, do a life-changing trip. 12 years from now, your purpose will land in your lap. And you've been looking at it for so long. You know, Abby got hers like year one and that's totally how her life works. When, but it was, yours isn't going to come till year 12. So don't stress out about it. It would be really great if we could do that level of detailed discharge planning. It would make some of it a lot easier to let go of. There's been some great things shared. And but what is the silence about tonight? Anybody? I think for me, the silence is to gather a full thought before speaking, especially on topics that are as deep as all of these are. I want to make sure that I'm not saying something that is going to mislead someone to go the other way. And I think to kind of look back at the overall picture of what we've talked about tonight, you know, there's some things that are very hard to deal with. And every single person that has a cancer diagnosis deals with them different. And I think the one takeaway I want to ensure that everyone on this call, but also that's listening has is, you're your own timeline. And whether you need therapy, whether you need other psycho psychosocial help throughout the process, I think there's a different time and place for everything. And whether that's initially when you're diagnosed or whether that's 40 years out, I think the cancer, as I say, thrivership process is everlasting. And just because you're in a different place than someone else, you may be psychologically in a different place. You have different circumstances. Your cancer may have had a different toll in your body, maybe had a different toll in your lifestyle. So I think just one thing I, I really want to ensure is that every single person tonight has the opportunity 
to fully reflect on their diagnosis and embrace every emotion coming along with it. I really love how you summed up like everything I was thinking. Like these are pretty serious kind of like reflections that you have about cancer. So I know like I was just spending a lot of tonight like thinking, how do I want to explain this? Because it's also something that I think I could just talk about for hours and like that would be probably wouldn't make any sense to anyone but myself. But I think the way you just explain that, how there's like just because you are one place doesn't mean that every part of your life is like at that level and that's like totally acceptable and normal. I think that's such a good reminder that there's just so much going on, kind of what might be kind of to the rest of the world behind the scenes, that there's all this processing and considering different angles and perspectives being taken at any one time. And especially for a podcast where there may be this desire to tie it up in a neat little package to offer it can be hard to, to find that. Um, because I think you're right, Abby. I think in some ways you can talk about these for hours and still not reach the end of the, the sharing or the reflect, reflecting. Thanks for listening to Life on Pause. Ideas or suggestions for future episodes? Feel free to share them with us. Join us for the next recording on the third Tuesday of the month. Until Until next time. time.